any community that is not aligned with white supremacy is under attack. And if we're not thinking about it in that intersectional way, then we're losing the story of what's happening. And what, in fact, what I've been saying is that white supremacists see us um, more unified than we do. Citizen Podcast. This conversation is right on time. Dr. Mitha Al-Hassan is a Syrian-American journalist, poet and scholar, working to bridge the worlds of social justice, academic research, popular culture, and healing arts. And on this episode of Citizen Podcast, she schools us on the history of immigration and white domination in America. May was a born learner only to grow up in a white America that treated her multilinguistic skills as a deficiency. She always found school to be regressive and disappointing and set out to learn all the truths on her terms and is speaking them out loud. When talking about Muslim bans or immigration issues, May says that it's not about whether immigrants are welcome or not. It's about white supremacy. Trump's travel ban was not the beginning, but a continuation of a legacy of immigration restrictions and bans in America. And it began with the Naturalization Act of 1790, which said only free white people could be citizens of this country. What we are witnessing right now, with travel bans and family separation, with caged children and overflowing, unsafe, unsanitary concentration camps was built on that legacy. And witnessing is exactly what we need to do. Not the kind of empathy that centers our feelings of other people's pain and just sits there, but the kind that takes action because of what has been witnessed. The word in Arabic is shahada, which translates directly to act of witness and testimony. May calls it a kind of witness, one that is interdependent, active, and engaged. One that understands that we all have a stake in transforming systems of oppression because we are all connected. And she leaves us with these critical questions and contemplation. Who is witnessing what's going on around us And what will we do about it? This conversation is real-time and essential. Take a listen. Welcome, May Maytha Al-Hassan. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited you're here. (laughs) I was thinking before, by the way, that um, we know each other in two contexts. We know each other in the yoga context. We met many, many years ago at at Hala's house, I think. Um, and then we met again in an activist network. And so I love that because it's rare that I have like yoga friends who are activist friends. Oh. And you're like one of the, the the few that like stand fiercely at that intersection. So I'm so excited yeah. you're here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here too and to make that integration even more uh, 
on point, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, totally. I have no doubt that you're going to do that, just knowing what I know about you. Um, when I was thinking about how to introduce you, <laughs> I was challenged. Okay, so you're an academic, an activist, a healer, a yoga teacher, a writer, a translator, an artist, a poet, an actress, a commentator, a speaker, an organizer. I mean, I'm sure I could go on. I was like, how can anyone properly introduce you? Um, and I love that because I love how many superpowers you're bringing to your work. Um, but I'd love first for you to tell us about um, where you come from and and even more specifically who you come from, because I would imagine that has everything to do with the work that you do in the world. Yeah. Ooh. Um, I'm going to start with where I just intuitively in my mind visualized, which was I was born in Southern California. That's strangely a big part of my story because I'm kind of as I joke, an L.A. stereotype in my <laughs> granola-free, crunchy, plant-based, yoga everyday lifestyle and thinking about the ways that I'm connected to nature, disconnected by virtue of systems that are around us. However, I was born literally in Little Aleppo because my father got into business with his brothers and through the business they bought out a track of houses that were model houses on a cul-de-sac. So I literally grew up with his family um, on that block. You know, we would take plastic chairs outside mm -hmm. and eat watermelon. Mm -hmm. I don't think people know that Syrians eat watermelon. So that's my dad's side of the family is that they're from Aleppo. He grew up in a very different environment to me, which was an, a, a Syria that had just become independent from French colonizers. Mm -hmm. So 1946 is when Syria becomes independent and months later he is born. So he's born into a new sort of reality, but also a reality that shifts the generations of his own lineage. So his father is a Bedouin from a different city completely. And that's a part of my story that distinguishes me from other Syrians in America, which is I have this direct ancestral connection back to Southern Arabia. Um, so I'm, you know, you're looking at me here, but uh, the listeners can't see me. I have kind of curly black hair and um, I just, I look a little bit quote unquote darker than the usual Syrian. My grandmother on my father's side has red hair and blue eyes. Wow. And that's actually the common story. Syrians are kind of like the white Arabs, which I didn't really connect back to until I've, finally visited there in my 20s. And why did it take that long? So my mother's side of the family, who was all over the world, Canada, Spain, UK, uh, Saudi Arabia, I think somewhere in Syria, um, we would converge in the south of France where her parents lived. And actually, to this day, my grandmother on my mother's side is buried in Nice in the south of France. So we would go there every single summer. And again, this was um, a divergent story from the Arab immigrant or the children of immigrants in the U.S., which is they would mostly go back home in mm -hmm. summers. And that's why their Arabic improved and they had a connection, strong connection to the land. And for me, I was going in. <laughs> to Cannes and these places that are, I, you know, I didn't realize it as a child because I was just going to see my grandparents and my cousins, but it, I didn't know this was like the film festival land, the yeah. partying, the Saint-Tropez, the upper elite aristocratic lifestyle. And I would come to find out later that those were the folks that my mother's family was partying with. 
And it would lead to some interesting complications, especially with my own politics. Um, so I then am raised in this smaller city, which some of your listeners might know about because of pop culture, called West Covina, California. Mm-hmm. Crazy ex-girlfriend put us on the map. And it was a city at the time, I grew up in the 1980s, that still was a Republican district. And so what that meant is even though there were a good amount of people of color, there was still this sense of white dominance Mm -hmm. because we, all of us, um, Asian, Indian, Black, Mexican, uh, other Latin Americans, we all tried to fit within the standards Mm -hmm. of white aesthetics, white culture. Assimilation. To feel like we were accepted. And that was my earliest memory. One, waking up in um, Aleppo, then going to school in America, white America. And starting- Was that a conflict for you? Oh, incredible conflict because um, I didn't know that I was supposed to hate myself until I went to school, actually. Um, I grew up speaking Arabic and English. I was put into ESL classes, even though um, I had already been speaking English, but I don't know if most folks know that when you go to a public school and they ask you what languages are spoken in the household, if you put anything in addition to English, even if you um, put like multiple languages and English is still on there, they'll put you in ESL classes. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, I'm already speaking, I've done math, I'm doing a little bit of reading, and then I'm put into a class mm-hmm. where they show me an apple. This is, I think, around first grade. Or no, I think it's kindergarten. And I was like, you know, they're showing us an apple. And I was like this is a motherfucking apple. Like, I know what this is. So I go back home and I tell my parents, what is the school thing? Like, feels very regressive. I didn't use the language regressive as a kindergartner, but that was definitely something that I felt and sensed. And so um, had I not told that to my parents, they wouldn't have gone to the administration and said, hey, what is going on? And so the administration's response was, let's test her. And so they tested me, and not only did I test into a non-ESL class, like a mainstream class, but they skipped me a grade and they put me in gifted. And they would never have done that. If I didn't go back. If your parents hadn't been like, what the fuck? Exactly. And had I not said that to them, they would have not known what my school experience was like. They they didn't grow up here. They didn't even inquire into it. Right. They They weren't testing for competence. They were... Right. They were noting that bilingualism or multilingualism was um, a deficiency, right? And so imagine- And not a strength. Right, not a strength. And of course, now we have scientific research that's producing all these reports about how fundamental it is to have a bilingual, multilingual brain as a child and what that turns into in terms of critical thinking, problem solving, um, acclimating and, and adapting in different environments. But yeah. At that point, English and Arabic. And I wonder if that policy still exists, right? It's such a subtle policy of exclusion. But I would imagine, just knowing even the school that I grew up in outside of Manhattan, that that was exactly what was happening when when I was growing up. And I don't, like, I just wonder, like, is that still the thing, the the line in the sand that they use to determine who gets into what class? Yeah, Yeah, totally. I I don't know enough about education to know that, but I would, I mean, especially... In Trump's America, like I wouldn't put it past <laughs> our school system. And the different ways that school plays out across the nation, yeah. right? And so what I think is really interesting, I think we're around the same age. During this time, there were shifting ideologies around education and culture in America. So there, 
I saw the move from the melting pot to the salad bowl, to the mosaic, to multiculturalism as a, at sometimes diversity marketing ploy, right? Yeah. Um, and also saw the transition from, um, from having Christmas break to holiday break, mm -hmm. from That's right. Christmas show to holiday show. And actually during this time, folks might find this really interesting. Like I said, I, I went back home. Um, so I, let me back up a, a second. Um, so during this time, um, the other part of my response, this is where the conflict around self-hate comes from. Yes, I was strong enough to tell my parents that this wasn't okay, but the message that was communicated to me was that me speaking Arabic was not okay. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped speaking Arabic back to my parents. Mm -hmm. And I, my little kid brain was like, oh, Arabic, bad. That's the association it made. So I tried for decades to separate myself from being Arab and try to find another identity to lean on. And for me, during this period with the transition to holiday show, to tolerance of other religions, it was being Muslim, ironically, pre 9-11. And so I just invested in that identity. Do you think, do you ever think about what, um, like what your path would have been like had you been assigned to like an ESL pathway yeah, and, yeah, not, yeah. and not sort of like accelerated academically. Cause you have like such an academic, you know, <laughs> I don't know what you would call it, pedigree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, I just wonder, right? Like had that fork in the road not happened for you? Well, I think about two things. One is that I think about all the other children that didn't go back to their parents and say this totally. was not at okay and where their lives ended up and where they could have ended up. And then for myself, I think about this continued to be my, the story with my engagement with public education was that it was never challenging enough. And my parents, again, also didn't have the experience growing up in the system to know what I was being dropped off into at 7 a.m. and what they were picking me back up from at 3 p.m. So, wow. you know, one of the first things I did when I got on the Internet was look for boarding schools. I was kind of like the little Matilda kid, I felt an outsider. So that was the other part of it. I was bullied like mercilessly for looking like an other. There were not any other Arabs in school mm. with me besides people who had my same last name because there was the Al-Hassan clan that mm -hmm. was on the cul-de-sac up on the hill. And so that, that continued to be, well, I should say contribute to a lot of, of pain as a, as a child was not just reconciling those two worlds, but really finding like I didn't fit in in any of them um, in the way that I was told to. So later in life, I would come to see that as a strength. But as a child, I was actually very depressed. And I've spoken about it more publicly about um, the kind of depression that I experienced as a little kid, like a seven, eight year old. We're hearing stories now about what's happening with young kids. And I, I think I read somewhere about an epidemic epidemic of uh, young black children with suicide now. So that kind of lack of attention to creating conditions that speak to, um, to embracing people, that's still continuing today, right? Like we've moved forward allegedly. I mean, and have we, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it just makes me like think about and I didn't plan to talk to you about education, but you're like now having to think about like, like what it's going to take and how 
critical it is to transform the culture of education and how we understand, right? Because that's the be- that's the beginning for so many kids, right? Yeah. In not just in like academics, but in culture, right? Right? Like what we learn in in school, what we learn from other kids, what we learn from other parents, what we learn from teachers and administrators is is such a like um, it shapes us. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. And um, not having an Arab woman be my teacher till graduate school was <laughs> was a big deal because, yeah. I mean, this is another part of my story. A lot of people who hear me talk about who I am and how I came to be, and that was the other part of your question, um, know that my father played a big role. And that's a story you don't hear in the U.S. context of talking about Arab and Arab Americans is the role for some people in their families that um, Arab fathers have on the career path or the trajectory of their daughters. It's usually told in a context of um, counterterrorism. Like our men are exist to make us submissive, um, mm-hmm. to be at their beck and call, and we are hidden behind the sheets, uh, black sheets, um, and we have no say. Um, and I, I don't want to generalize, that's also a, not the best strategy in countering that kind of prevailing stereotypical thinking. But I also do want to mention that during my childhood period, um, my father was very involved in local organizing. So that's another part of you were hinting towards my activism. Um, I was introduced to so much in the municipal context, in the state context, that I don't think any of my other peers in terms of uh, people in the Arab American community really came close to till after 9-11. Well, and even just hearing the story about how your parents protested, you know, your assessment at yes. the school, right? Yes. was like an act of activism. Yeah. So my father would take us to city council meetings. Uh, we'd go to God, poli- awesome. <laughs> political fundraisers, do canvassing, go to phone banks. I'm sure I did a phone bank and I was underage <laughs> to do it. Um, and we protested a dump site that was supposed to be closed near our home. And one of, the, one of the funnier things was that my father would always take me to political fundraisers. And at the time, I was somebody who loved belly dancing. So I would only agree to go if I could dance at the political fundraiser. And here I would dress up in a costume my mom made, like a really skimpy outfit for a six-year-old. Like, I call it a little John Bonet Ramsey-esque. <laughs> um, and then my father in- introduced me as his future congresswoman. And had I not had that, given the world around me, the pop culture imagery, where totally absent was that of a strong Arab or Muslim woman, what would have I become? Yeah. What would I thought was possible? Yeah. What, um, so your, your dad and your mom migrated to the U.S.? So my mother, the reason her parents were in the south of France, so this is because they're both Syrian, yes? Ish. The complication. So, you know, it's funny. I think we we forget that a lot of these countries and these notions of nationalism come to be in the last two centuries, right? So when borders are created, That's right. then identities are created. So Syria comes into being in 1946. And before that, that whole land before French and British colonizers came in was... Um, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Jordan. That was called Bilad al-Sham, which is land of Syria. Because of the way that the Ottoman Empire, which preceded British and French colonialism, would rule the area, which was very decentralized. So 
people identified with cities and not a nation state identity. So that's why I led actually this conversation talking about being from Aleppo, which in Arabic is Haleb. So there was a strong identification with being Mm Halebi, which is, you know, the adjective or sorry, the the noun around somebody who's from Aleppo. Um, so So my mom's story is that she was born in Syria, couple generations back, her family is from Egypt, actually. And we only uncovered that when we went back in my 20s. Whoa. I was like, whoa, how come I didn't know this part of my story? But when she was very little, they moved around all over the place. So her father was a diplomat. So my the marriage between my mom and dad is kind of like the marriage of the princess and the pauper. Mm-hmm. And so she moved from Egypt to Turkey to Spain to all over the place, and then finally settled in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So she really identifies with Lebanon. That's why I would travel there frequently. However, another plot twist, her family has Saudi citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so on my birth certificate, it literally says I'm Saudi and Syrian. Whoa. Yeah. So when people look at me, they're like, what? How, how is that part of your story? And it's also an interesting conversation because it tells you, you know, you're podcast is citizen Mm -hmm. and we think about citizenship how citizenship plays out differently in middle east or what i like to call northeast africa and that is what passport you have is your your entry point to navigating that place that you're living in so if you so it's not even just place-based right right so there are very few people in saudi arabia and not saudi arabia let's say the emirates who have an emirati passport and it doesn't get directly handed down either. Your father has to be Emirati to be handed out. So my mom had a Saudi passport. She couldn't hand it back down to me, which, you know, some would say who would want a Saudi passport, right? Um, but for somebody who is a Muslim, going and being able to go hassle-free to visit one of the holiest sites in yeah. our tradition, Mecca and Medina, that that would give me easy entry. Yeah. And then... I'm going off on a little bit of tangents, but talking about education, before this current administration in Saudi Arabia, there was a policy of offering scholarships to Saudi students to go study anywhere in the world, and mostly American universities. And that included graduate school. That also included healthcare. And at a certain point, I really wanted to go back to law school, but I wasn't willing to have that quarter of a million dollars of debt. So I was trying to look back to see if there were any ways that I could navigate and get that money. Um, But now, one, that's not the case anymore. The new administration kind of pulled all that out under the rug, following suit with American financial advisors who have instructed them to take money out of social services, like healthcare, like education, and redirect it to a defense budget. Mm Sounds Which, familiar. Yes. <laughs> um, so your par- so your parents come to America. What? So this is my question. Is oh, like yeah. what? Um, but thank you for taking on that us on that tangent. I have a feeling you're going to school us this whole podcast. I'm just going to keep asking you questions because I'm like learning so many new things. Um, but what do you think inspired them to get political right away? Like, do, is that something that they have been oriented to from where they came from, or or did they feel compelled in America to get engaged? Okay. So. The other part of my mom's story I did not finish is that she grows up in Lebanon and in 1975 started the Civil right. War. So her father at this point is a diplomat there involved in politics that are going on that would have spelled danger for his family. So he gets wind of what's happening and before there's a submergence or a, a total explosion of violence, he takes his family and moves to the UK and my mom finishes up her last school there, uh, her last year of college there. 
And then they moved to the south of France. And so in her early 20s, she's there. And my father, at this point, so he comes to the States in 1968. And literally uh, just um, a couple months after MLK has been assassinated. So this is a very interesting time and climate for him to be here. And he was uh, somebody who worked as a busboy to community college classes to transfer to an engineering school. It was his dream to be in an engineering school where he would learn how to build cars. Cars were his big, big passion. And, um, you know, he hasn't publicly told this story, but I think it's a fundamental part of who he was. He was working at a cafeteria, I believe on campus, and he was promoted ahead of some of his white uh, colleagues. And one day he was walking to work and he was jumped by two of them. Mm. And they, I guess, walked on his back and he was injured so severely he was in rehab for six months. So the idea is that this dirty Arab gets this job before them. And this is Southern California. He went to school in San Gabriel Valley, um, Inland Empire area, and that was still something he experienced. I, you know, to be honest, I don't know what really led him in, but the irony is that because my mother's father was so heavily entrenched in politics and she saw what that meant in terms of displacing them, and especially for her, somebody who loved Lebanon, like her heart still is there. It's in Beirut. Um, she has so much distance from politics. It's, it's like she's allergic to it. She doesn't want to get involved. Mm. Um, you know, we'll tell her who we think are great candidates to vote for and policies that are important for us. But ironically, she does get heavily involved in PTA. And that's the kind of work that speaks to her is Love something- That, that is po- what, local politics. politics. Exactly. And so for my father, you know, coming from a Syrian context where um, the- um, The party that the Assad regime is a part of comes to power in 1963. So for five years of my father's adult life, he sees what that dictatorial Mm -hmm. nationalist transition and, you know, some people would call it socialist, but we can have disputes around around terminology, um, what that did for him, which is that when you're under a really oppressive, tyrannical dictatorship, that political participation is not only stripped from you, but your ability to engage in freedom of expression and speech is also as well. And so I think there was a part of him that because he was so heavily excluded as a Syrian in that period from the political process, wanted to be engaged in it. And I know that he wanted to desperately run, but he said to me once, he's like, "Um, you know, I have an accent. No one's ever gonna elect me in this country. Okay, speaking of tyrannical <laughs> dictatorships, yeah, you know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about the Muslim ban. Um, <laughs> oh, actually, I thought you were going to actually jump back into Syria, but that is a tyrannical <laughs> dictatorship yeah, too. Yeah, no, I figured that that was a good bridge. Um, and we don't hear so much about the Muslim ban now, right, years later, and yet like, th- it was the tone, I think, that really shaped um the last two years under this administration. And you and I were together when yes. when um, that order came down, the executive order came down. 
in LA and, and I'll never forget it because I was so grateful you were there and Linda Sorcerer was there that I was actually in your presence while this was happening because because I didn't understand what it meant right and and right away I got this incredible context like this is what this means this is where this is coming from and so f since that day I have always been like whenever I had a question about it I have always been like what is May saying <laughs> follow May and we've at Citizen Well we featured like your Facebook lives. And I mean, really yeah. like you have helped us make so much sense of this. Um, and I'm so grateful to you. And we, and we just like stand in the place of like, it is so important to listen to the voices who, um, are most proximal, right. Yeah. To those who are most impacted. Um, and you have been one of those voices for us. So I'm grateful for Thank how you. outspoken, um, and I'm sure that has been challenging for you, how yeah. outspoken and committed you've been to really like Thank helping you. people make sense of this. Um, and I want to read something that you wrote because, um, I, I think it gives better context to how we should be talking about this. So you said, uh, when you were talking about the Muslim ban, you said their geographies are in places that we call the Middle East and Africa. But the bigger story of this is the fact that um, a ban's a ban is part of the logic of white supremacy in this moment. And I think that's really important because um, even to call it a discriminatory policy against Muslims feels too innocent, right. right? Like this has everything to do with our legacy of control and colonization, of policing bodies, of harassing and harming others, of detention and incarceration. Um, and you wrote a great blog, everybody should read this, um, about how we have to go beyond the immigrants are welcome narrative. Um, but this is not the story that we hear in the media. Yes. Um, it, right. Like, and it's even not the story that we hear the left in the, on the left and in progressive communities. Um, and it feels like we actually need to be telling another story. And so, so what is the story that, that we need to be telling about uh, not just like the Muslim ban, but this administration's, um, um, like policies against, um, um, not just the, the the migrant community, but but communities of color in general. Yeah. So when the Muslim ban came down as an executive order, it was right after the inauguration. But it also was part of a series of other executive orders that targeted That's right. the um, indigenous Native American community in response to Standing Rock. That's right. There was another executive order that was a response to federal oversight of police and law enforcement right. that had come in response to Ferguson. So that oversight was stripped as well. So the message that was communicated in those first couple of weeks in my mind was that any community that is not aligned with white supremacy is under attack. And if we're not thinking about it in that intersectional way, then we're losing the, the plot. plot. Yeah, we're losing the plot. We're losing the story of what's happening. And what, in fact, what I've been saying is that white supremacists see us um, more unified than we do. Yeah. And so imagine if we actually saw, yeah, imagine if we actually saw what was happening in Standing Rock with what was happening um, in response to the protections um, of law enforcement um, against police brutality or protections that around police brutality, I should say, and also um, the, the the ways that uh, the, the Muslim man was transpiring. So those all those things are happening. And then, of course, that uh, plea for the wall, which, again, it just shows us how much this administration and the white supremacist agenda, which also was very much set after, like literally the day after Obama was elected, there was a convening of white supremacists in Tennessee, and they said, what, what are we going to do to oppose this administration at every turn? And what's our story going to be? 
and their story was white genocide. And so if they could prove and show that any other community was infringing on the reproduction of whiteness, whether it is like the physical demographic bodies of white people, or if it was also the rights of white folks that was being taken away, allegedly, um, as if rights are this scarce resource right. by other groups of people, then they were gonna wage an all out war. So that was their story. And we never came up with the story. A counter story. Sorry, right. Yeah. So they've been writing with white genocide since 2008, but we haven't even been able to pinpoint that. So fast forward. Um, we also did not put pressure on the Obama administration to move past liberal policies, liberal policies that in other people's hands could be easily exploited. So, for example, um, where you what you were quoting was from um, right before Obama exits, he they pass a budget and part of the budget was this visa waiver program, which reversed the. Um, the visa waiver for anybody that had nationality in Syria or Iraq, which what that meant was if you're a European um, who's from Spain, like my cousins are, my Syrian cousins, and you're Syrian, you can't come to the U.S. without getting a visa now, like any other S Spanish person. So that made them second-class citizens in their own country by the U.S.'s doing. So that existed before the Muslim ban, and people are like, oh, you know, whatever, it's an additional issue and an inconvenience, maybe, you know, they just have to go to the consulate. But what that effectively did was it gave DHS, uh, Domestic Homeland Security, the jurisdiction to be able to add as many other countries as it wanted. It was like they cracked the door open. They cracked the door open, and then the Trump administration actually cites this visa waiver program. And kicks the door in. And exactly, exactly. And, you know, they start with countries like Syria and Iraq because there was a geography of violence created right. around them, which... Which supported <laughs> that affiliation for them. Right? right, right, right. And that geography of violence, which we never have a conversation about, comes because of the destabilization of the Middle East, because of the Iraq War and other decades of U.S. interference in the region and military bases and so on and so forth, and drone strikes and bombings. And um, so none of that is part of the conversation. It's just in a non, uh, con an unconscious American person's mind, here's the Middle East. These are this is where violence occurs, and people are born and bred to be violent, and if we just block them from coming here, we'll be safe. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon for making it possible for us to do this work. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. 
You can join us at patreon.com slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L. I think this is so important too, because I think there are so many people who woke up on November 9th, 2016. And 11-9, I call it 11-9. 11-9, right, right, 9-11, 11-9, and thought that this was the beginning yeah. of a tyrannical trend, when in fact it was the continuation of one. Right, and so going back to this idea of why the ban signals a... Uh, another iteration of white supremacist policy is we've had migration restriction, immigration restriction bans that were exclusionary to every group except Northwestern Europeans many times in our country's history. So when people went to LAX to JFK and said, immigrants welcome, this is a part of our history, Statue of Liberty says, bring me your tired, your downtrodden, no, it's actually not a part of our history. And what you read from was an article I wrote for the Boston Review on the, I called it the 100 years history, but it went a little further back, um, or hundreds of years history of the Muslim ban, which starts when, um, after the constitution is passed, there's a law in 1790 that says only white free people That's right. can be citizens of this country. The naturalization. Correct, exactly. And so what that meant was that effectively, every kind of legislation was trying to include other people who were not that. Whether it is women, free black folks, um, excuse me, any other group. And then, but the whiteness is so prevalent and strong that in the early 20th century, when Syrians were migrating here, there's actually a lot of, um, in law school, a lot of discussion is around Syrians coming in the early 20th century because they're the ones that kind of flipped what they called naturalization cases. And what was happening was that an Indian person, a Japanese person, That's right. uh, Thind, Ozawa, were trying to find any argument to become a citizen, but they had to use the claim that they were white too, to get citizenship. Which is assimilation, the very assimilation right. that you were right. talking about. Right. Conform and we'll reward you. Right, right, right. So it's not really immigrants are welcome. It's uh, immigrant is welcome if you can demonstrate that you can assimilate into white culture or whiteness. Um, while other groups weren't able to prove their whiteness, the Syrians were around a very interesting argument, which was what they called a civilizational, cradle of civilization argument. And so basically they said, they stated, oh, you all are white, white Christian folks, right? And most of the Syrians coming into the US at this point were Christian. They said, well, where do you call home? You call Jerusalem home, you call Paul of Damascus home. Well, we're from there. So if you're white and Christians are white, we're white too, because well, we're from there. Well, and there is the history of Christian domination in our country. Exactly, exactly. So that's how they were able to flip it a little bit, but that didn't mean also during this period that Syrians weren't being lynched and had crosses burned in front that's of right. their house in the South. And that's what was also happening at the same time. So you also said um, it's not enough to say no ban, no wall, but rather like no prison, no cops really gets at like what we're talking about because white supremacy sees immigrants and people of color the same way. Um, what is the relationship? Can you help us understand the relationship between this sort of immigration debate and mass incarceration in our country? Right, right, right. right. So the Muslim is racialized as this brown foreign other. So when we say Muslim ban, automatically people are thinking about that, even though some of the countries on that ban are from Africa, 
right? So effectively, as we've seen around the 20, free 21 Savage, nobody's thinking about black uh, migration to the U.S. and how they're and undocumented folks and how they're affected by the same policy. So that's one thing. But systemically, a lot of the stuff is rooted in a system of anti-blackness that creates um, the logic around the need for prisons, for a penal system, for restrictive immigration policy, and it's actually black organizing that reverses some of this stuff. So right. what I was telling you. Um, about restrictive, restrictive immigration, there was a National Origins Act that came into, uh, that was passed in 1924, and it was only totally gutted in 1965 because of the liberalizing trend of the civil rights movement. So a lot of folks were able to come after 1965, so all those uh, quotas for non-European countries, non-Northwestern European countries, were dissolved, but people came here and they didn't see the black freedom movement that was responsible for letting them come into this country. That's right. So there's a disconnection in that point to what they owe in terms of black struggle. And as we saw with the 1790 naturalization, uh, yes, um, that the first group of people to expand that were black folks right. when they were. Uh, when they were emancipated after the Civil War. So there's that element. Which led the way for women. Yes, exactly. Right? Precisely. And, and, and that's another connection we don't make, we fail to make, especially as white women. Right, right, right. But also black women were involved that's right. in the abolition process as well. And so, um, you know, it's that historical nod to, to the struggle that preceded us. So that's one point of it. But like I said, that logic about restricting people that are not white comes from a rooted anti-blackness. Um, why do you think that as a movement, we have such a hard time with intersectionality, yeah. right? With um, like, we, we stick to our issues, we stick to our identities, and we fail to your point um, to connect the dots around how our liberation, our emancipation, our right to vote has all been very interconnected and interdependent. Is it, do you think it's like self-preservation? You know what I mean? Like are people just like struggling to survive and don't feel like the movement is strong enough for us to like band together and to tell a more complex, like what do you think is at the root of that? I think people, it's gonna sound harsh, <laughs> are still invested in the possibility of ascending to white middle-class status. And so hierarchically, the way they're positioned, let's just take um, a system that is rooted again in anti-blackness. If, if you're brown um, and you have documentation, you are looking at somebody as undocumented, as holding you back. As a threat. Yes, from being included conceptually as being worthy of having an American citizenship. Like, you know, people are just like wrecking their brain. They're like, why are some of these Latinx folks in Texas voting for Cruz? Like, how did that happen? Well, it's because they are believing in this mythical universe That's right. of their ascendancy to, to white uh, middle-class um, uh, uh, social culture. And so I think people are still holding out for that. For the American dream. dream. Right, right. And you know, what would it mean for us to see these also as not um, just um, uh, abnormalities of the system? And I think that's what people are seeing and banking on. So the people that come- Versus a mythology. Right, 
Right. The mythology that they're invested in, which they're thinking that these are temporary detentions. They're thinking this is a temporary hold back in their fulfillment of economic mobility. This is just, this is a temporary moment where the wall might just be up for a little bit. This is a temporary moment where some of the people who look like us are in detention, but we're not supposed to be there because we work hard, because we own a business and we're slaving away. Bootstraps. Right, exactly. Meritocracy. Right. And if, you know, if black people worked a little bit harder, then they would be like us. No, absolutely not. Well, and this is no different than, right, third, fourth, fifth generation white European migrants, you know, who I think make up a a good part of, like, Trump space. Right, right. Who are defending their turf, right? And and Gore Vidal said, this is like the United States of amnesia because, right, we we are against migration and movement and and yet we come from it. And it does feel like, like there's there's a shared ideology there to some extent, even though like it's happening in such different ways to such different groups of people of like defend your turf, self-preservation, like hold on to the the mythology of the dream, um, keep going, don't let anyone get ahead of you. There's not enough to go around. Like all of these ideologies sort of conspire to like get us stuck in this like stalemate with one another. Right. And, you know, lack of uh, putting this in a better way, but like this is why white supremacist culture is so boring too, because you can't know about any other part of your story beyond a couple generations. And then you have to carry on the myth that it's always been like that. So how am I going to break this system that has been in place for centuries? No, it actually has not. This is a relatively new process in the history, the modern history of people, of folks around the world is this idea that, uh, actually a very small group of people in terms of global population should control all the resources around the world. Which is going to, by the way, end the world. Yes, yes. And so I'm going to test out a pretty, I don't know if it's going to be an unpopular thought, but I've been sitting and thinking. All unpopular thoughts are welcome (laughs) on this podcast. I've been sitting and stewing around how we talk about Western civilization. And we all enter college and we have to take West Civ 1 or West Civ 2 and continue the process of being trained around um, the history of modern thought comes with enlightenment, the Renaissance era. and All positive things. Right, 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 right. And also, you know, nobody, no other history existed before. Like there was a medieval period that everybody was, I guess, in the world under except the fact that it was actually only concentrated in Western Europe and that's it. And these are the stories we're told. And this is the other part of the story we're told is that knowledge production exclusively comes from this process and this period. But that knowledge production was um, sponsored and subsidized by colonial enterprise. By well, and industrialization sorry. is also a part of that story, right. which is you know wreaked havoc. Right. So on my our, on our on Earth. Right. So my maybe popular or unpopular. I know where you're going, and I totally agree. <laughs> so I want people to hear Western civilization and think stigma mm-hmm. in their head, have a bad association, and say Western civilization equals destruction of organisms because it's not also just us and the the livelihood that we could have in this habitat that we're ruining and destroying but it's we're taking all the other species with us totally i was even thinking of calling the course the beginning of the end right like right exactly this is, this is the beginning Can- of the end i mean it's so funny because when i think about um because I don't, I also like, I feel like I'm a cynic, right? So I, I want to be careful not to like mm. assume that all bad things have come from this right. too. Because right. I, 
part of what I see emerging post-2016 election, and, and has been emerging for some time for those of us that were in the movement long before that, um, it is a greater understanding of our interdependence and, yes. and, and, and more vocabulary around it, more shared practice and culture around it. So while um, it does feel like things are like slipping and rolling back, right, I also see kind of an, an evolving Right. And an expansion of an understanding that our liberation and well-being are bound. Right. Um, and and it reminds me of like one of the quotes that you had on your website. I, I don't know if this is like your tagline or your mantra, <laughs> um, but it 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 says um, a kind of engaged withness. Yeah. Um, and and that does seem like. Um, I don't know, we have more words around that and more right. practice right. now than we've had in a long time. And that even while things are slipping and getting worse, that is also something simultaneously that is emerging. Um, and I love the kind of part because it feels like, right? It's like, it feels like it makes space for paradox and contradiction and difference and conflict mm, wow. inside of witness. So I want, I want you to tell us like what, what you mean when you say that. Right, right. So this conceptual framework emerges from my dissertation, which I wrote two years ago. And it's the idea that I just struggled a lot with solidarity as a concept of acknowledging and practicing interdependence because how it frequently manifested, you know, I come from an organizing space, was an assessment of a reciprocal exchange. And so- It assumes sameness. It assumes sameness. It also has a calculation around how much I'm willing to give you around, let's say, your struggle. And there, there's sameness and separation, right? Your struggle's over there, my struggle's here. I give you my solidarity for your struggle over there. but. If, we're, if we kind of take away that engagement or if we take away those terms and say, actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing what's going on for you, uh, but with me in the process, then it transforms not just the relationship that you have with, quote unquote, the other person, um, but acknowledges the difference, but your relationship to the difference. So what I mean by that is that um, I am very inspired by um, actually Islamic um, spiritual tradition. And a lot of that came out of how witness is described in a uh, Quranic and spiritual sense. So in English, we think about witness as I am, here you are, Kelly, I am... I'm seeing that you have a bandage around your thumb and, <laughs> you know, my, my heart might get a, go out to you, but then it just stops there. Right. But in Arabic, the term around witness is shahada and included in that definition is to testify. So you can't have one without the other. So if I'm standing there and let's say the bandage fell off, I would just say, oh, Carrie's just in pain. That's it. It would just end there. But if I was like, is there anybody around who has a Band-Aid? That's me testifying. It sounds like you're defining the difference between empathy and compassion, right? Yes. Like you can have empathy in which you can um, retain a sense of separateness. Right. Like I, I feel for you, whereas compassion calls you to act on their behalf. Exactly. Okay. And so also I've spoken uh, publicly about some of my frustration around how popular empathy has become because it also always centers 
our feeling of the other's pain and just sits there. And that's cool, but it's also a little self-absorbed. Was that, oh my God, I'm so empathetic. I just carry all these people's pain around right. all the time. What and if I I'm an empath? Throw, what do I do with do, that? Oh yeah, I'm an empath, yes, exactly. <laughs> what do I do? I just have to protect myself from everybody else's suffering. Well, no, so now it's all about you feeling other people's suffering that now we should feel for your suffering. Oh my God, yeah, I so, love you for saying that. Well, I, always, I also love compassion too, because why, why did we throw away that term? You know, and because it does call to action. And if you look at the history of how witness is deployed, it's deployed around um, conversations about the Holocaust, who was witnessing the genocide, um, conversations around slavery, who was witnessing what was going on in slavery. And, you know, for a lot of international tribunals and other genocides, the term witness comes up and we think of it also in a legal, uh, 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 juridical sense in the U.S., but if you saw those as twinned, like how differently are you oriented in the world, right? And so I, I have this kind of conception, which is now people are gonna, um, might get a little afraid, um, but uh, so shahada means witness to testify. It also means martyr. And that's where people are really afraid of what that term could possibly mean. Well, and it means different things in different contexts right, too. Right, right. But the way I interpreted the connection of all those terms together is if I'm witnessing an injustice, a part of me dies. And the only way I can be reborn is through the telling. So that's why the dissertation is called To Tell What the Eye Beholds. I mean, I don't think that's radical or like um, controversial at all, right? Because I think it even reminds me of like our relationship with the term allyship right now. Mm -hmm. um, and also... Um, the prevalence of like white savior syndrome, which like seeps into so much of our activism um, or the or the othering of like, I'm gonna help that person over there, you know, regardless of who is doing it. Um, but if there's no skin in the game, right? Like- uh, like stakes. It's us understanding that we all actually have a stake in transforming the systems of um, oppression that more people in the world are um, experiencing than not, but also the people who are allegedly privileged because they're part of the destruction of their own life. Oh yeah, white supremacy, I mean, everyone is suffering under white supremacy. I don't care where you're, you know what I mean? Like it just, I mean, in different ways, certainly based on our location and our proximity, but like not healthy for anyone. <laughs> right. I should also say that the other part of the influence of engaged withness is um, James Baldwin. So a kind of. He was asked, I think, what he considers himself. Is he a writer? And he said, no, I'm actually, I'm a witness. And the pen is my weapon. And that's how he saw himself. And so, you know, we started out this podcast talking about all the different ways I yeah. show up in the world and spaces I show up. And I just, I guess I don't see them as separate. Yeah. You know, we were talking about how we collide in, in, in such a rare way, the yoga community and the organizing community. But for me, it's all withness. Yeah. Because that interdependence, that interdependence is the genetic code that I, I guess I've existed in the world with and that integration of mind, body, spirit, when that hasn't been acknowledged, I've, those moments of depression as a seven-year-old, uh, those moments of depression when I was forced to have cerebral processing as my way of being as an academic, that's led me to say, oh, 
something's out of balance. That's right. Because everything should be talking to each other. Mind, body, spirit should be talking to each other. I should be talking to the art community, the organizing community, the academic community, the media community. I should, I, I just, the that separation doesn't exist for me. And not, not that there aren't proper boundaries that people should have and spaces should have, but, you know, that's, the fiction of Western civilization is separation. Binary. Binary. Oh yeah. The what the how the Victorian period fucked us all up. <laughs> that's that's where um, homophobia comes from. Yeah. You know, is just this investment in, in an idea of a white male rich person who is heterosexual as the ultimate citizen. And that, that tiny little place called the UK just <sighs> exported that all over the world this, and we're still paying the price for that's it. Right. That's right. Um, it, it, so I want to talk about healing because I yes. feel like you're going yes. there. And um, and healing also as like wholeness because I feel like that's also what you're naming is like um, in our culture because of because we've been indoctrinated under all of these ideologies yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and exports, thank you very much. England and, and other, and other, you <laughs> yes, know, of course. colonizers. Um, um, we do a lot to like contort, right. And, and exclude parts of us and neglect parts of us and deny parts of us, whether that's mind, body, soul. And I think of that also in terms of like community and meta community, right? Like when we don't understand that we need all of our communities to be healthy and whole, right. Then we see that it's, it's possible for us to separate and to actually work against one another. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we talk about and we explore at Citizen Well is, is this idea that like the wellness culture um, sells us a myth that you can do self-care and I'm wellness so glad you're talking about by this. yourself yes. and in isolation. And that's enough when in fact, like we're like, yeah, no, no, actually you can't achieve wellness when other people are suffering. So I feel like that's our version of testifying. Yes. Right. Like we witness and we testify and therefore we must be engaged right. in, um, in like the well-being of everyone because our well-being is intrinsically tied up in that. Right, 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 right. Um, and so I know that you're a healer, you're a yoga teacher, you're a Reiki master, you're all sorts of- Almost a master. Okay. I just completed level two, so I don't want to misrepresent myself, but yes. Okay. And you, um, in 2017, you piloted a trauma-informed yoga program yeah, yeah. Um, geared towards displaced and marginalized people. You you piloted it in Greece. It's called Yoga to Displaced People. Um, and so I want to hear, like, your, um, not just, like, the role of, like, healing in social justice and liberation work, but more specifically, um, like the best practices of how we do it, right? Because yeah. we do healing a lot of different ways. Um, and we do wellness, as I just mentioned, a lot of different ways. And and, and a lot of it is perpetuating um, systems of, of separation and systems of white supremacy and systems yeah. of, um, of oppression, right? And so how do we do healing with one another? Yeah. Yeah. How do we do wellness and yoga with one another in a way that um, supports and reinforces our... Um, like that that truth that we have amnesia about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to pick up from the pushback around self-care culture, which is, I'm not Get saying it. that, you know, you can't have that bubble bath and feel good about it. And I think that part of that movement was, I don't want to feel guilt for taking time for myself. And that's fine, but you, it's not a revolutionary thing to have 
a 16-hour day filled with gig economy, capitalist labor production, and be and, and appropriation your, and appropriation and tear up your body and say, okay, I have a bubble bath now. I've reversed all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the trap it gets us into is that our real work, we're, we have to do all that stuff, like the, the caring for ourselves, but maybe we don't actually need that much maintenance if we didn't have systems that took away so much from us, right? Um, so as an example, let's, let's think about the folks coming from many different places. You know, I think the, the misnomer around or the misconception around refugees is it's Syrian refugees, right? There's Afghans because... Clearly, we were responsible for their displacement. Um, there's a lot of Africans from Cameroon, from Congo. Um, folks from all over the world had this moment to leave where they were going. And what I frequently heard was that had they known how difficult it would be and what they entered into, maybe they would have just died back home. Because the thing was, quote unquote, back home, um, before the intervention of, of war, of economic systems that made it untenable to live, um, they had a community. And I, you know, I know I hear more people talking about community care and why that's so fundamentally important is that pregnant mother from Syria who gave birth in Turkey on her way to Greece and had an infant that she's taking in a boat and then comes there and doesn't know that what's happening to her child in a community of elders, she would have. Um, she also would have a community of elders that would take care of her kid when she needed to go take a shower, you know? So that isolation, that individualism, that disconnection from an ecosystem of care, that is radically felt yeah. um, in the new experience for displaced people on the Western European continents, right? And especially within a refugee camp geography. And so for me, I thought like, I can't change the EU. I can't, not that those things aren't possible, but in the immediacy of now, um, what can I do if I can't change international law and the sweeping, overwhelming anti-immigrant sentiment that's hitting the US and Europe? So let me give people a chance to mindfully breathe. Mm -hmm. And that's been a little bit of my mantra in, in addition to a kind of engaged witness because how much of us running from something is a continuous running? And when do we get a moment to breathe? Um, so I worked with a women's center in the island of Kios, which is one of the three islands that most people come to on their way to try to get to the mainland of Europe. And these are almost extensions of war geographies with how not just chaotic, overwhelming, how securitized these islands are. I mean. I, there were shifting tides, but at the point that I came two years ago, um, if you weren't a refugee, you couldn't go in and out of the detention camp because they didn't want you to see the deplorable conditions that folks were living in because they were afraid of you reporting back food poisoning, everything. Anyways, so um, what could I offer? Um, the women's center on the island of Kios was almost like a, a bit of a shelter because women could spend their whole days there, get therapy, um, medical training. And I asked if I could do a trauma-informed yoga series of workshops. You know, I was trained under Hala Corey, who we both know. And so that was, that's part of my trajectory. Um, and then to also try to teach in Arabic. Um, and so it was kind of fun because, wow. well, 
you know, the thing we always forget, because we just think about how difficult people's situations are and where they're coming from and how um, just, like, we just think challenge, everything is is dark and dreary. And um, <laughs> what they need in some of these moments is not just mindful breath, but play and fun and laughter. Mm -hmm. And so... My pronunciation is not the best because I stopped speaking Arabic for decades and then didn't pick it back up till college. So I was trying to say breathe, like the most essential word in yoga, and I just didn't pronounce it right. And they all started cracking up and I felt some kind of way. And I was like, no, I shouldn't. I should laugh at myself too. They're like, no, it's really cute. The way you're saying it, it's funny, it's cute. And so, um, you know, here they were like laughing in yoga. We, we do have laughing yoga, right? And I'm just like, no, just let it be. Mm -hmm. Let them have their moment. But I. I just, um, at the end of doing this for a week, there was this teenage girl from Iraq that, uh, came, that came and she was kind of a quiet person. And I just noticed at uh, this moment in Shavasana, there was a smile on her face that just glowed, um, was glowing up the whole room. And I was like, if I could just give this young girl a moment mm -hmm. to feel okay, then that's great. But it's not even me giving this moment, it was you have these tools available to you and hopefully you can employ them and think about getting back into your body when your body has been so radically, not just displaced, but racialized as uh, not wanted, excluded. How can you get back into your body and, and say it's, it's okay being me in this space that doesn't want me here? Mm. So um, despite all the things, despite what we're witnessing, right. um, and despite your life's experiences, you still have a vision yeah. for freedom. And I'm sort of like, how the fuck is that possible? <laughs> but And yet I'm like, please have a vision for freedom <laughs> for all of us. What What is that and how do we get there? Yeah, so after Trump was elected, like in the couple of minutes of 11-9, I just had this download come to me that was like um, what you need to invest in is divine feminine work and um, art. And I come from an organizing background that centers abolition. And a lot of people do. A good friend of mine, Patrice Colors, and I constantly have conversations around this. And she is somebody who I've really look to to lead the way around how to think about abolitionist frameworks for transformative justice, for organizing, for conceiving of new, not just new communities, but new ways of relating to each other and within ourselves. But that moment, I just had this stark intervention from the spiritual realms. And I started to do, well, actually, I was asked to hold spaces to use um, Islamic spiritual practices geared towards the divine feminine rising and sacred femininities. So I started to do those and I realized that a lot of women that come from, you know, kind of the same demographic as, as me, women of color, also raised in a Muslim household, were taught a very mechanic version of it that was fixated on uh, a practice of um, assessing piety and performing piety, right? in a public way. And so- Like Athena. Athena? Yeah. Like the Greek god Athena is very much like that. I didn't even know that's the way that- That's the way I like heard it. 
Really? Like performative, strong. Interesting. Like I see her as rigid. But she's the warrior that is born out of Zeus's head, mm-hmm. right? Okay. I see that. Mm-hmm. Now I see that. Um, so I started holding those spaces and lo and behold, this was something that, you know, most of these folks are either my age, younger, were desperately searching for was a connection back, especially within white supremacist, capitalist, um, homophobic, transphobic. All the water, all the, all the, women. All the, yes, all of it. That sort of system, because a lot of that work is also about disconnection, not just from each other and us, but from the spirit world. And that's been something I've been invested yes. in. And so the Reiki came out of, after this moment, in this aftermath, I'd already been doing yoga, but that's the sort of stuff that I've been cultivating. But I would also say on a practical sense that I see a lot of work for transforming who we are and our societies in local, local organizing, local pressure on local politicians. And we've seen a turning tide clearly on the national stage when it comes to the 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 different, the tide that's come in, uh, women of color, the AOCs, the Randa Talab, um, the Ilhan Omar, but we've also seen the resistance they've received as these young women of color with a radical agenda for justice um, that people are unwilling to let go of. So one, we support them, but we also know that on the federal level, that's not gonna radically shift our everyday lives. It does have a large influence and I'm not going to say that it doesn't, but the local work, if we wanna take over city councils, if we wanna be the head of school boards, we are shifting if a little Metha is going to go to ESL, right. or gonna be sent on the educational pathway she should have been destined towards, right. right? And so that kind of work, it's not glamorous. It doesn't get you on MSNBC sometimes, but it's the most critical, crucial, vital work we could be doing. And at the same time, using that experiment to say, how can we think of freedom and justice differently, um, especially with these local structures connected to a country that has such a violent, damaging history that has a constitution that wasn't meant for so many people. Well, maybe these places are the pockets of freedom. And that's been all my mentors is the grassroots bottom up storytelling and organizing is what can transform. And we need to flip and invert the ways we've invested in the top down because we're actually like Republicans then. It's trick, it's trickle down freedom. I'm that's sorry. Right. Well, and it's not, it's a bypass, right? Yes. Because yes. we can't, I mean, just to use your phrase again, like we can't bypass the withness, right? Like we need the proximity to better understand one another and to, and to, and to witness and testify. We can't do that from afar. Right. Right. Um, We have to actually like build that in these sort of like Adrian Marie Brown calls it like fractal moments, fractal relationships. And and that's what I hear you saying is like, let's start with you and I. Right. And see the tangible work that your everyday labor towards freedom and abolition is doing on the ground level. You know, um, Los Angeles uh, had an amazing victory happen uh, last week or two weeks ago around putting a stop to a $3.5 billion jail expansion plan that has been set into motion over a decade and a half ago. And 
Patrice, who we've mentioned, and her organization, Dignity Empower Now, and the coalition that Dignity Empower Now is a part of, Justice LA, has been doing this work. And they were able to convince a, a, a board of supervisors that has a budget of $30 billion plus dollars to say, guess what? These prisons aren't going to do anything for us. They're just going to cost us more money. And what about if we create decentralized mental um, institutions or centers instead? And that's a reimagining of mm -hmm. what it means for us to have agency in the process of freeing ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that at that like fork in the road between like you being like put on one of two paths at school and your parents sort of speaking out and protesting that um, that you got on this path because um, you are such a force. And every time I'm around you, I learn so much that it just, I mean, speaking of witness, like I just wouldn't know or learn or understand in the way I need to um, were we not in relationship in this way. So I'm just so freaking grateful for like you being on this podcast and you being in my life, but you also being in the movement. And and we will continue to like follow you and listen to oh, you and you. and we will testify. Yes. We will testify. Testify. I love it. I feel like I'm it's like I'm being reminded of Madonna. <laughs> I'm going to testify my love, but I like mean it now in like a whole other way because of you. I'm going to testify for justice. I'm going to testify for justice. So thank you for being here, May. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You got it. While this episode is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to witness and testify to all that is shocking and hard to look at and to cultivate a kind of witness that is grassroots and bottom up. You can learn from and follow May on Twitter at Maytha Alhassan and check out her writing at mayalhassan.com. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer, who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you all for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. <laughs>